Welcome to our continuing 2017 educational webinar series. I'm Catherine Short, Partnership Marketing Specialist for FIRST Healthcare Compliance. At FIRST Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business, a hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have Karna Morrow, Director of Consulting at Coding Strategies. She is a CPC, RCC, CCSP, AHIMA approved ICD-10 CM trainer. Karna possesses over 15 years of experience within community and academic hospitals, as well as private practices and third-party billing companies in areas from billing and collections to coding and compliance, revenue enhancement, and process improvement. Karna provides coding strategies clients with coding support, audits, and customized on-site training. Her areas of specialty include diagnostic radiology, interventional radiology, cardiology, and evaluation and management. Karna holds a Bachelor of Science from Weaver State University. A copy of the slide deck is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box on your control panel during the presentation. We will address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM CEU certificate will be emailed to you from PACOM following the broadcast. There is no need to request it. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. Karna, go ahead. Good afternoon. Welcome to the 2018 Radiology ICD-10-CM coding updates. Coding Strategies is pleased to participate today with First Healthcare. My name is Karna Morrow and I will be presenting today as we go through the presentation, if questions arise, don't hesitate to jot them down and you are more than welcome to submit those questions during the presentation or at the conclusion. Before we get into what is specific to 2018, I want to step back just a little bit and perhaps put some context around why there's so much attention on diagnosis coding. The fact that I have the first bullet point in red is probably a key indication. First and foremost, it is very important to remember that submitting a diagnosis code on a claim is not solely for reimbursement. In fact, if you'll notice, reimbursement really comes in in the third and the fourth bullet on this slide. It's all about data collection. It's a being able to trend and track conditions um, perhaps percentages of complications of certain conditions, but always keep in the back of your mind that ICD-10 is the international classification of diseases. The World Health Organization maintains the master database, and that is what allows us to consider um, you know, trends in diabetes or trends in obesity in children or compare different countries and their mortality and morbidity rates based on diagnosis codes. Now that data obviously has valuable, um, has value to it in respects to, to evaluating the healthcare utilization. 
If we notice a trend, uh, like an upward trend in diabetes, if we notice an upward trend in COPD or coronary artery disease, then it's very easy to anticipate what healthcare services and the degree of healthcare services that may be needed in the future for any given geographical area. Because here in the United States, our healthcare budget is exactly that, a budget, and it has a limited, um, limited boundaries to it, then obviously the data from diagnosis codes helps determine patient coverage and what conditions, um, you know, down to the level of what conditions are better suited in, um, in a hospital setting versus a physician setting. You may be aware of recent changes with some of the private payers coming out and saying what conditions will and will not be covered in the emergency room. So I'm not trying to discount the fact that diagnosis codes are used for provider payment, but don't lose sight of the bigger picture as well. And I think what I hear coders sometimes default to is, well, I can't code that, it's not covered. Well, all they need is that diagnosis to pay the claim. Well, there's a lot more involved than just paying a claim. Providers will immediately start seeing this as we look more closely at the value and the quality-based care payment systems. You may be more familiar with the term MACR or MIPS. And as we look at um, even the measures and the, and the um, algorithm for the CPT codes and the diagnosis codes specific to those measures, and then when we get into the um, improvement care metrics, you're going to see more and more focused on the diagnosis codes. So, you know, the uh, Journal of AHEMA summed it up very nicely for us that diagnosis codes historically had little impact. But as we watch that change, it's very important that we involve the providers. I know I'm speaking to the choir, but the providers need to make sure that it is that they're validating and updating all of those documented conditions for each visit. Now, why would I use the word validating? <laughs> we all know that there's a lot of EHRs that maintain a problem list. We know a lot of EHRs that will um, carry forward certain pieces and parts of the record. And it's very important to make sure that if there is a condition in that impression and plan that we use to put on a claim form, that those conditions were actually managed or impact the management of that specific data service for that specific patient. There are additional tools and resources for you to consider and have at your fingertips. This is on the CMS website, and if you just go to the ICD-10 downloads, you'll be able to find this ICD-10 Next Steps Toolkit. It introduces some of us that are not used to, you know, if we're coming from a hospital environment, diagnosis codes have been on our radar for quite a while. We're very familiar with MCCs and CCs. We're familiar with the DRG codes and how the severity of the patient directly impacts our payment. Those of us with a physician background or we have worked exclusively in a physician environment, that may not be as comfortable to us. You need to start thinking about ICD-10 codes as a key 
performance <clears throat> indicator. How often are your claim forms denied for lack of medical necessity? That's one reason in and of itself to drill down and make sure that we are really evaluating ICD-10 codes as a key performance indicator. Now this toolkit has more than just ITUN, but I want to focus on the bullets that are on the left hand side. Tracking our key performance indicators, we all do the AR, we all do the number of days in AR. But if you look at the middle column and go down to the fourth bullet, requests for additional information, which claims, which diagnosis codes, Look on the very far right column. Do we have issues with incomplete or missing diagnosis codes? Do we have issues with the use of unspecified diagnosis codes? And then the medical necessity pass rate. We really want to dive in and utilize, I mean, ICD-10 gave us an incredible depth I realize sometimes we really don't need 26 codes on turkeys, but it is Thanksgiving. So what we really need to remember though is this added specificity. It may not be so much left and right, but there's a lot that we'll talk about today related to cause and effects, a lot related to risk factors. And those are the things that we wanna take into consideration when we think about do I have missing diagnosis codes? The toolkit goes into um, additional resources for you to help you set up a program to treat diagnosis codes truly as a key performance indicator. So we all know that coding requires more than just matching a magic word to a code. We know that there are electronic resources that assist us but we do need to make sure that just because we have a tool, I have an encoder, I have um, you know, Optum 360, or I have other resources to help me code efficiently. They're only as good as how we use the specific tool. <laughs> I think all of us sort of um, you know, have to sheepishly admit that sometimes we have codes framing our monitors. And we just have to remember that that is definitely not a replacement for any of the official tools and resources. My challenge with the sticky notes is they're very small and very brief. And sometimes they got put there maybe in the beginning days of I-10 implementation when I just wanted to jot this down because boy, it seems like I'm looking it up every time I turn around. Well, that leads us to use them almost as defaults. Well, I remember edema, I really don't have time to look this up, and I know edema will pay the claim. Sometimes our initial um, job aids become shortcuts that hurt us in the end. Always remember that there is a very specific hierarchy to coding guidance. Now, when we're talking about CPT codes, clearly the American Medical Association is the top authority. For today's presentation and today's topic, it is the American Hospital Association. 
The AHA is a collaborative party in creating the codes and specifically creating the rules and the guidelines for implementing the codes that have been given to the United States by the World Health Organization. Never forget that the insurance company is an authoritative source, even more so than a specialty society, even more so than a billing company. If your billing company says this diagnosis code is required to pay the claim, yeah, that should put a red flag up. But we want to remember the golden rule, and I know you've heard me share this rule before. He who has the gold makes the rules. So if you have a contract with United Healthcare and United Healthcare says they want a certain service sequenced in a certain fashion, then it's not that I'm coding to get paid. I'm coding according to the guidance of the payer I have a contract with. And there is, there is that distinction that we need to keep in mind. Also, always remember, which we'll highlight more today than anything else, each edition of the I-10 book, so when it came out and is effective October 1st of each year, we need to make sure that we do more than just update the code numbers. It's very easy to recognize, wow, N63 now has fourth and fifth characters. Did we look at the rules? on how to implement those new codes. So make sure that each year you take the time to look at both. Today's agenda, we are going to do both. I want to talk about some of the guideline updates. I want to share with you some of, um, if I can call them tips and traps. Coding Strategies has the opportunity to provide compliance reviews for a lot of our clients. And in those reviews, we take the opportunity to look at the assigned diagnosis codes and then look at the documentation and identify if, in fact, the coding rules have been applied or if there's some shortcuts taken and there's a practice in place that is more one and done. As we complete those audits, we do see trends. We see habits that are continuing coast to coast. And I want to share some of those with you and remind you of what the actual guidelines are. When we look at the changes, the actual, this code changed from A to B for 2018, you can see there on the list the six or eight chapters that contained the most changes. And I need to highlight that. In the next hour, we are definitely not walking through the I-10 book page by page by page I want to give you those with the most changes, those that I think impact the most practices, but you still have the responsibility to go through those codes that your practice uses most frequently and just make sure that none of the fifth characters have changed, that none of the application of those codes have changed. So to start with, you have the book. Don't forget the instructions in the front of the book. I know, I know, a lot of us, we just want to dive right in, dive into the index, look for my codes, but always remember that the official guidelines for coding and reporting are also updated on an annual basis. 
Now it's nice that they at least underline things that have moved within the guidelines since the prior, since the prior year. And it's usually pretty easy to identify changes, but you definitely want to take that opportunity to do that. I want to share with you a website. It is um, CDC, Charlie David Charlie dot gov. And on that website, you will be able to find an electronic copy of the ICD-10 codes. Now it's the entire code set. So it is when they say on the fourth bullet down here, the ICD-10 CM fiscal year 2018 full PDF. Yeah, they mean the full PDF, but it is a PDF. And so it's very easy to search for keywords. For those of you who are in positions similar to mine, and we need examples out of the code book, or I need to be able to share, you know, the index, the pathway. In other words, I need the book for educational purposes. The way they're printing the ICD-10, the font is so small that it's very difficult to use in an educational um, setting. But if you download the ICD-10 from the cdc.gov website, then you have a full PDF that is a lot easier to snip and it's a lot easier to implement into presentations. So that's an opportunity um, for you. It's also an opportunity for very small practices with a very um, dedicated focus of clinical care. When resources might be tight and you really only need 50 ICD-10 codes, if that's, if that's possible anymore. But anyway, just wanted to make sure you were aware of a source for the ICD-10. Um, sometimes we can even get our hands on the electronic before I can get a print copy. While you're um, thinking about updating your ICD-10, please think through the entire organization. It's not just the coders that need to be updated. It's not just the physicians that they now need to say the specific location of that breast mass. Think about who does the authorizations, all of the ordering of your imaging. Think about who does the surgery pre-authorizations. Think about any service that goes out of your practice that you participate in sharing clinical information. If you'll notice here, um, I didn't specifically intend on isolating NGS, but this is just a reminder that we need to look at the updates from the payers as well. And so um, NGS has come out on their website and they have a list of revised LCDs. Which LCDs the diagnosis codes have been added? Which LCDs have diagnosis codes that have been deleted or have been replaced? And so you're right, last year NGS paid that diagnosis code. This year, it is not on the approved LCD list, or as you see with the breast imaging on the very last one, due to the ICD-10 update, N63 was deleted, but now it has been replaced with all of the codes that offer more specificity for that same type of diagnosis. I need to update the codes, but I need to update the guidelines, and then I need to look at how my payers are implementing those guidelines um, almost at the same time. 
one resource that I need to make sure is on your is in your library. Now, if you're in a hospital setting or you are associated with a hospital, they may already have a subscription to the AHA coding clinic. Now, remember that American Hospital Association is the authoritative source for implementing ICD-10. So even if I'm not a hospital, I am a freestanding solo practitioner in a rural community. Yes, a few of them probably still exist, but I need the guidance from the AHA, even if I'm not a hospital. So you can go onto their website and you can, you know, you can subscribe to an ad, you can become a subscriber with an annual subscription. Notice that there's also a student subscription if you are um, doing an internship or you're just learning. Probably the second most important thing on their website is submit a question. And that's where a lot of their um, Q&A in their publications come from. Those of us in the trenches are trying to figure out why the index says that I should use everything as an unspecified code. But if I go into the tabular, I have more, you know, more specificity and I have fifth characters that were not mentioned in the index. The index seems to direct me here, but boy, everything in my brain says I really should code it like this. <coughs> Excuse me, have a little bit of a cold. In those situations then, these quarterly publications at the AHA Coding Clinic offer me extra direction. For example, coding clinic third quarter, when a patient has a gunshot wound with retained bullet fragments, it's a puncture wound, not as a laceration with foreign body, and definitely not an unspecified opened wound. Now, those of us who have been, you know, on the clinical side and we have experience with gunshot wounds, I'm not sure that puncture would have been the first word that came to my mind, I would have looked at open wound. So I needed the ICD-10 guidelines to direct me so that I am coding the most appropriate. Also, that I'm coding consistently so that if three coders in my practice or three coders within a community, they're all categorizing and classifying a gunshot wound in the same manner. Remember data collection. If we do not categorize conditions consistently across coders, then that does not allow for um, accurate data. I think we've all heard garbage in, garbage out. Here's another example that came out of the AHA coding clinic back in 2016. Remember when Medicare came out and said there are no more um, unspecified codes? And a lot of us really stressed. Okay, a lot of us are still stressing because the documentation just isn't specific enough. How often does your report just say, away, osteoarthritis? Well, they let us know in the fourth quarter of 2016, when the type of osteoarthritis is not specified, it means it's not documented in the report that I have. I default that to primary osteoarthritis. I do not need to use an unspecified code. I can default it without the word primary being in the medical record 
because I have the authoritative guidance from the AHA. Coding Clinic, the second quarter of 2016. As we come, I don't want to say come up with new diseases, but as healthcare changes, we came up with e-cigarettes. Okay, that's not something we had 10 years ago. But the Coding Clinic, second quarter 2016, explicitly told me how to use, how to report e-cigarette use. Z77.29. So let's take a minute and let's look at some of the ICD-10 guideline updates and then also a few of my tips and traps, my reminders um, that I see trending across some of the audits that we perform. The first one is probably the challenge that we have with the EHRs, the Electronic Health Records. AHA Coding Clinic, quarter three, please pay attention to the year. This is not new. Documentation for the current encounter clearly reflects the diagnosis that are current and relevant for that encounter. Now, obviously, I'm giving you just a snippet. You want to go to the source document if this is a practice within your organization that may need to be modified. If a condition is not documented in the current health record, and when they mean current health record, they are not saying the entire medical record, because look at the next phrase. It is inappropriate to go back to a previous encounter to retrieve a diagnosis without physician confirmation. So my record today just says sepsis, pneumonia, fracture, follow-up, um, lung cancer. I can't go to the visit from last week. I can't go to six months ago to pull that specific information out of the original impression and plan or the original um, HPI. It needs to be documented in each encounter at the level of specificity that I need to assign a diagnosis code. Now, if my billing system tells me that last week I used, you know, EO 4.2, but today it's an EO 4.9, then I know that today's record is probably incomplete. And it is appropriate to go back to a provider for confirmation that the specific type of that thyroid condition is still X and supports the 0.2, but then it needs to be added to the record. It's easy to immediately think that this is laborious and time consuming and the area that really has a lot of the repetition is in the social history, the smoking status, um, the past medical conditions, the amputation status. And remember, those are usually updated each encounter and they're updated each encounter for that specific reason that they are still relevant for the encounter that I'm coding today but we need to be very careful that we're not going back into the medical record to identify a diagnosis code for the service of today. Caveat, inpatient coding, when I am coding for the facility, 
not because the patient is in-house, but I'm coding for the facility, those rules are a little different. For them, an encounter is an entire admission. But for us, if we're coding for physicians, those rules are a little bit different. While we're talking about the EHR, notice that clear back in 2015, when we were still on I-9, and definitely since we've migrated to ICD-10, we need to remember that is there an official policy requiring providers to record a diagnosis in lieu of the number? And the answer is yes, there is authoritative guidance on your impression and plan being condensed to just a diagnosis code or the diagnosis nomenclature. There is also authoritative guidance that you do not submit just a number for an order. It is not appropriate for the providers to list the code number or select a code number from a list of codes. And the very last sentence on this slide is probably the most relevant. It's not that we can't maximize our EHRs and have that information available we just cannot use it, and I'm going back to the last line, we cannot use it in place of the written diagnostic statement. And so if I have N63, but I also say that this is a lump, that's appropriate. Because N63 is used for swelling, it's used for a mass, it's used for a lump, and if my medical record defaults that down to just a code number, the specificity of the medical condition for this patient is lost. And you're right, I'm sure the claim got paid, but the patient care tool, the medical record, has been compromised and manipulated into a reimbursement tool instead of a patient care tool. And I think we need to continue to hold that line. I know it's time consuming to document patient visits, but we still need them to accurately reflect the patient care. One other guideline, and I didn't put a year on this one because it is the exact same guidelines as 2016, 17, go back to 2015. This guideline has not changed. And it speaks directly against the, as I mentioned before, one and done. It's, I don't want to say never, and I don't want to put statistics on it, but for a lot of us, especially in primary care, it's difficult for us to have a claim go out the door with one or two diagnosis codes. Our patients have multiple comorbidities. They have multiple chronic conditions. And even if you're in orthopedics and you have a patient with a fracture, I'm willing to bet there's more relevance than just the fracture diagnosis code. Does that patient smoke? Does that patient have a history of long-term use of steroids? Has that patient previously had radiation, chemotherapy? These conditions speak to the patient's ability, not the patient's, but the patient's body's ability to heal. And so the outcome of that fracture, the risk of it being a delayed union or even a malunion, are impacted by what we call the rest of the story. 
And so it's very important that we start um, communicating that rest of the story to the payers. Again, number one, for data collection, but also number two, because it's the rule. Code all documented conditions that coexist. Now, some people, that's all they read, and they have a meltdown because some of our patients, the problem list has 75 entries. <laughs> the devil is always in the detail. Code all documented conditions that coexist at the time of the encounter and visit. Now, here's the important part. And require or affect patient care treatment and management. So just because I have migraines, if my migraines do not impact the fact that I am coming in for a flu shot or do not impact the fact that I'm coming in because of a sore wrist, well, if it's not impacting care today and the physician is not um, taking my chronic meds into consideration for the antibiotic he's putting me on or the steroid that he's putting me on, if it does not affect the patient care or the management, it does not go on the claim form for today. But if it does, if I am an insulin dependent diabetic, then that insulin has impact on the medical decision making for the physician if they're scripting new steroids, if they're changing um, an anxiety or an antidepressant medication then the diabetes, the insulin status, should definitely be on the claim for that office visit. Now the responsibility of the provider in the impression and plan is to document that thought process and to document the relationship between these codes. Patient is at risk for delayed healing due to long-term steroid use. Patient is at risk for delayed healing due to smoking. Patient is at risk for COPD exacerbation due to continued smoking. The physician, the provider has a responsibility to document the relationship between the conditions. So coders, we're not gonna just jump into the record and code every single clinical condition that's mentioned but we do want to do more than just one and done. If you look at this image, a lot of us um, grew up with the musical, The Wizard of Oz. Yes, now I know you have the song stuck in your head and I know that you've heard, some of you have heard me use this analogy before. As we walk down the yellow brick road, because, 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 Answering the question, why? This patient has a rash, why? Well, we don't know, well, that's as far as I can go. But if I know that the rash is due to a reaction to um, an oral medication, then that reaction should be coded as well. If the patient has low back pain, and they have low back pain because they have metastatic disease, then both should be coded. It's not just immediately jump to the metastatic disease. That's not why the patient came in. They came in for low back pain. Now there's a difference, and I'm gonna say this a couple of ways. There's a difference between telling the story and breaking out signs and symptoms that are inherent in the, the confirmed condition.
So if I come in with abdominal pain and it is confirmed appendicitis, I'm not going to code the pain. That's an inherent sign of um, appendicitis. But let's talk about abdominal pain in a patient with Crohn's. I may not be actively um, managing their Crohn's today, but the flare-up and the excruciating abdominal pain, if the sign and symptom leads to a diagnosis that has that as an inherent condition, code the final condition, but when the sign and symptom is in the context of a bigger chronic condition, then we want to make sure we're telling the story. So we do always want to think through the context of this as being, if this is either being acute or this is chronic. Let me give you an example. Patient is seen for neutropenia caused by an accidental overdose of their meds. And I know that phrase accidental overdose is probably a little harsh for some of us, but how many of your patients have taken their medications incorrectly? And so they show up in the emergency room with, you know, heart um, hypertension. They show up with shortness of breath and chest pain, but it's specifically due to mismanagement or um, not taking their medications appropriately and being able to uh, completely code that as first the T code for that accidental overdose. What is the, what is the um, evidence or what is the outcome of that accidental overdose? Then it's the neutropenia and I know exactly um, what type and so I can code that as a 0.1 instead of defaulting that as a 0.9, which would be the fourth option. Smoking. A lot of our patients are still smoking and that factors into not only the outcome of a lot of our conditions, but we know that it complicates the health of our patients. And so smoking is one that is going to frequently be on our ICD-10 list and on our claim forms as a secondary condition. And again, look at the date. This is the ICD-10 index and the coding clinic fourth quarter 2013. They realized we weren't reading the index and so they put it in the coding clinic. If the documentation simply states smoker, the patient is a smoker, it doesn't say dependent, it doesn't say abuse, it doesn't, it just says smoker. And that's probably reality for a lot of our records. Well, I have authoritative guidance that that should be reported as codes for nicotine dependence. But it really doesn't stop there. Nicotine dependence is categorized by the type of product, and remember the e-cigarettes are using the Z-code. Within each category of that dependence, we have an opportunity to code it as uncomplicated in remission and withdrawal or a disorder. If we're coding tobacco dependence, we're probably coding it because we're coaching the patient to stop smoking because of their COPD or because of something that the smoking has caused. That is a point eight. That sixth character needs to be an eight. 
not an unspecified. So those are some of the little nuances that both the AHA coding clinic and the guidelines can help us. We really don't need to be using as many unspecified codes as we are, even when we feel that the documentation is limited and it just says smokes. We have um, additional information that we can code. The ICD-10 ICD guidelines. Remember that the default code, which is if I'm in the index of the book, the default code is rarely complete. And so I want to always make sure that I don't code from the index. Take that extra step, go into the tabular, and confirm if it needs a fifth character for the laterality so that it's M16.12 or 13 or 14. One of the other guidelines that came out is the word and. The word and really means and or. So if there's primary osteoarthritis of ankle and foot, it does not mean that the documentation must support both. I think that's one reason people use the unspecified or the other specified because it says ankle and foot and my documentation only says ankle. Well, the guidelines have already given us that instruction. We interpret that to mean primary osteoarthritis of the ankle and or foot. So it's appropriate to use that code even if only one piece of the statement is accurate for the record you have on that specific date of service. Similarly, when the ICD-10 guidelines say with or in, it means that the two conditions are associated with each other or they're due to each other. So if there's organ dysfunction due to sepsis, the physician does not have to use the word due to if the description of the code says with. Only when it is not linked with the word with in the description. If that had said organ dysfunction comma sepsis, uh, due to sepsis, I would need both of them documented. But if the description of the code uses the phrase with or in, it automatically means due to. And that may save us from some unspecified codes. So if I have a patient who has a documented kidney stone with hydronephrosis, if I go through the index and I follow the key terms, it gives me the calculus with hydronephrosis. So because the patient has both conditions documented, the index uses the word with, that means I can code the N13.2. Diabetes is another guideline that we really need to, almost on an annual basis, look back at. We get in the habit, we memorize the codes, we know that the E-codes are diabetics, and sometimes we need that refresher. I don't see the Z79 on the number of records that I see the E-codes. If our patients are diabetic and use insulin, 
then I should see that Z79 on every one of those claims. If the patient is treated with both oral and insulin, the guidelines tell me to only code the insulin, sort of that higher degree. And I should not be using the Z codes if it's something that is being done to temporarily um, uh, maintain a patient's blood sugar. But we have a lot of diabetic patients. A lot of our diabetic patients have um, insulin or oral medications that they take. Look at your frequency report. Run a frequency report on your diagnosis codes and see if the number of Z codes, the number of smoking codes, the number of risk factors match what your physicians think are the clinical demographics for your practice. Blindness and low vision. Visual impairment is something that we see documented on our, on our reports, but not necessarily using the term visual loss. Okay, we have guidelines for doing that translation. I don't wanna harass my physicians to document a specific word just because that word is in the I-10 book. If I have guidelines that say, if low vision is documented, then visual loss is acceptable or blindness. Obviously that one's a little easier to crosswalk. But sometimes there is a disconnect between clinical language and coding language. The ICD-10 guidelines will help us with that translation. There are new ICD-10 guidelines for MIs, myocardial infarctions. And so the guidelines now tell us that we are coding based on the type. Is this a type one, a type two MI? Okay, that's something that we may need to educate our providers on because they may not be giving us that level of detail. But I also have some defaults. If it is a type two myocardial infarct due to a demand ischemia, then here's the code that I use or if that MI was due to an underlying, an underlying cause. As the guidelines change, it may impact our documentation and it may impact how we assign the codes. How we sequence the codes can change from one year to the next, especially if we get new codes. Code first, code also, we know that those notes are found within the tabular section of the I-10 book and we really need to follow those, the code first, the code also. That most of those, I shouldn't say most of them, a good number of those should be followed related to complications, post-procedural MI infarcts for a cardiac surgery. Be aware of how the codes play against each other and with each other. Because again, remember, what's the number one reason that I'm assigning an I-10 code and putting it on a claim form? No, not to get paid. The number one reason is that data collection. And so we wanna make sure that that data that is used for policy, that is used for coverage determinations, that is used for payment um, is accurate and it is complete. Hypertension, there is a change. Again, the physician, the provider is not required to document that relationship between hypertension and heart failure. I can use a combined code if both conditions are documented, again, that causal, or that causal relationship um, is understood in some conditions. Pulmonary hypertension. 
we're going to do pulmonary hypertension as an I27 pulmonary heart disease. And if it's secondary pulmonary hypertension, then there's a fifth character for that. Any associations, adverse effects of drugs or toxins. And am I treating that adverse effect? Then the adverse effect is sequenced first. If I'm treating the hypertension, then that hypertension goes first. Coding is, is so much more than just matching words and codes. We really are um, the, the, what do I want to say, the, the artist who is putting the, the story together. There are guidelines that have been changed and added related specifically to reporting abortions. If a patient has a specific complication from the spontaneous abortion or the elect, elective termination, then the complications are going to come specifically from the O03 or O07 categories instead of the 3.4 or the 7.4. And yes, it's very difficult in print to see the O's versus the zeros. Um, I think a lot of us still struggle with that with the I-10. ICD-10 guidelines seven characters for fractures. Those of you who are dealing with open fractures. Obviously, I know that it's an open, but the classification was not documented. And so I'm going to use the seventh character for the type one or for the type two Castile um, fractures. We always want to remember, and this is what I was talking about with the abdominal pain that led to appendicitis versus the abdominal pain in a patient with established Crohn's disease. We do not assign codes for signs and symptoms that are routinely associated. Your patient is diagnosed with a fracture with a sprain. You're not coding pain. If you have um, you know, low back pain in a patient with um, a compression fracture, we're clearly not coding the back pain if it's obviously in the same region. But we want to be very careful that as we step up and code a complete story, that we're not being repetitive in the codes that we're assigning. Another opportunity where I see unspecified codes being reported that are not necessary. We now obviously get to report the laterality of a lot of our services. If the body parts come in left and right, then so do the codes. But not all of the codes have an option for bilateral. And the guidelines instruct us to code both two ICD-10 codes, one for the left and one for the right when a bilateral does not exist. That is not a situation where we would default it to the unspecified. Remember your sequencing for outpatient guidelines, the reason for the encounter, and then all of them that coexist. And that's when we're talking about chronic conditions that coexist at the same time. When we talk about diagnostic services, so I am coding because I'm doing radiology, I'm doing lab, or I am actually provide, or I'm reporting diagnosis codes for services that have been rendered. Well, the rules for diagnostic, the rules for therapeutic are a little bit different than they are for um, just routine outpatient services. So remember your sequencing and follow those rules very carefully. Always watch the language of the physicians. Suspected, probable, um, treating as if none of those are confirmed diagnosis and they should not be assigned on a claim form. Lab values um, cannot be interpreted 
non-clinicians do not make clinical decisions and so we need to make sure that our diagnosis codes are coming from that impression and plan or they're coming from the chief or the HPI we cannot be abstracting out information from lab values unconfirmed diagnosis our differential diagnosis anything that's compatible with are not reported we drop back to the signs and symptoms one thing the other that I see is if a patient comes in for a screening um, we're really good at putting the Z code for the screening but when something is found we do a screening let's say we do the um, low-dose lung screening and the reason for the exam is a screening but they find a nodule well that nodule needs to be assigned as a secondary diagnosis code forget the one and done Okay, let's take the last few minutes and go through some very specific chapter updates. And I do these at the end because I recognize that not all of us code from all 26 chapters of the book. Um, and so I will whip through these rather quickly. Um, obviously, you have handouts and you can circle back to the details within the, within the actual ICD-10 book. Always go to the source um, to find more information on these specific codes. Again, the MI codes, we talked about the guidelines have been changed and the guidelines have been changed because we now report type one through type five. And so um, that fifth character has obviously been expanded. So if it's a three, the MI resulted in a sudden cardiac death. If it's a five, it's a coronary bypass surgery. Um, it was a spontaneous MI. It was um, secondary to a different condition those are going to be our codes so obviously i did not provide the entire list but you can see how it's going to be um sectioned out that the i i21.a1 i2a.a9 and yes we do have that mix of alpha um, and numeric within our fourth and fifth and sixth characters the circulatory systems for heart failures we're looking at whether it is a stage a b c or d and the codes are going to be reported um, consistently so if it's a stage a and it's just a patient who has a high risk of developing a heart failure because of all their risks well then i'm putting a z9189 if <clears throat> based on the documentation there is a diastolic or systolic um, heart failure that's documented then it's a stage D and I'm also coding the I50.84 a lot of new subcategories and codes for those of us who are working in um, cardiovascular anything to do with the heart we have a lot of um, better classification and again the better I can be at categorizing the type of patients and the type of conditions then the better um, policies, LCDs, coverage, the better data we have, the better policies and better decisions that um, healthcare can make based on the trends of, health, of uh, conditions within our patients. Additional subcategories for heart failure and those of us who are in cardiology, please, you know, sort of put on our radar that we should not have the I5, I50.9 very often is if we're treating a patient not diagnosing the patient with heart failure but actually treating it we should be able to have the documentation to support a higher level of specificity 
The circulatory system, as we talked about, the pulmonary hypertension. Anytime you know you have new codes, it's a good red flag to go check for new guidelines. As you're going through the guideline sections, you're going to see prompts that there are new codes for that same disease, that same um, clinical condition. Respiratory system, COPD, if there's a um, low respiratory infection, there are changes to the instructional notes. Little nuances changed from use an additional code, coding also. The infection can now be reported as a primary code, meaning I'm managing the infection, or I'm managing the COPD, and the patient also is, has that infection. What's the primary reason for today's encounter? But little language changes, like use an additional code versus code also, impacts the sequencing of our codes, which may impact how the payer processes them. And if you see things getting denied on a diagnosis code, it may be a nuance in this situation. So it's more than just copying the medical record and sending the medical record in to defend your diagnosis code. It's understanding what might have prompted that, that denial, doing a little bit of detective work and saying, ah, the guidelines changed, the sequencing changed, I bet the issue is this, and address it um, without the medical, you know, without uh, going a traditional route of the medical record. Digestive system, there were changes to the intestinal obstruction codes and whether they are complete obstructions, whether they are partial, instru partial obstructions or not documented. And again, if I'm you know, in the diagnosing part of the um, treatment care, then unspecified is probably reasonable. But as I go down the pathway and I'm now treating the patient versus diagnosing the patient, um, that level of specificity is going to be anticipated by the payer. And so those are opportunities for clinical documentation improvement. Muscular skeletal system, we have two new codes very specific to the lumbar section, um, spinal stenosis in the lumbar region with or without the neurogenic claudication. The GU section has, as we've talked about multiple times, that N63 has been subdivided into 15 new codes. Yeah, I know, N63 was so much easier, but it didn't make any sense. Why were all of the other breast conditions um, specified by laterality and by quadrant, but this one little lone N63 was not? And obviously enough questions were raised that they fixed that. So make sure you've updated all your internal documents. Additional codes have been added to the tubal and ovarian pregnancy codes, again, adding that laterality. When I-10 came out, we expected laterality on everything. We didn't get it on everything. And so now as we have subsequent updates to the book, then those perhaps oversights um, are being rectified. We have new codes created to describe the abnormalities of a fetal heart rate or rhythm. They have been added to the 036.8 maternal care for other specified fetal problems section. So if you're an OBGYN, you want to make sure that you look through your chapter specifically. We have new codes um, for the perinatal period for hypertension, for uh, <coughs> encephalopathy and other conditions that we, um, I don't want to say routinely see, but that we commonly see within our um, newborns.
As we walk through the book and we get into the later chapters of the S, there's new categories for intracranial injuries. And the seventh character being able to being able to sync up with the um, entire mortality and morbidity pro, um, intent and objective of ICD-10, and being able to say if the death is due to the brain injury prior to regaining consciousness or um, other costs prior to regaining consciousness. So a lot of them, again, we're not going to see these on a daily basis in our clinics, but the audience for this presentation is rather wide and I wanted to make sure we cover at least high level the primary changes for the chapters. The Z codes, that very end instructional note under the Z categories. These are paid codes. I know that when we crosswalked the V codes to the Z codes, some of us crosswalked the myth that if it's a Z code, it's never paid. But in reality, that chapter does have a lot of valid um, not only primary diagnosis codes for our screenings, but also explaining our risks. And so we want to make sure that we do take those into consideration, specifically for the fiscal year of 2018, the observation of a newborn and the category uh, is used within those first 28 days, suspected to have abnormal conditions, but they don't have any signs or symptoms. So it's a suspected condition that is ruled out. Um, the guidelines have been changed. It no longer mentions that the condition must be unrelated to exposure from the mother or the birth process. So a little more latitude in how those codes can be used. Significant changes were made to coding some of the screenings as well. And so again, if you're an OBGYN, you really want to take some time and slow down through these chapters, look at your exclude ones, look at your exclude two notes. Here's a quick screenshot of how some of the codes are structured, the level of detail between the Z36.2, 0.3, 0.4, um, 0.5, and notice that it comes down to even having that fifth character that may be required on some of the screening that we're doing. Additional examples, um, cervical length, genetic defects, we're seeing more and more of that within our clinics. Earlier I talked about the long-term um, use of steroids or the long-term use of insulin. And so just as a reminder, as we wrap up, and I know, I know I'm pushing the top of the hour, I'm watching the clock, we're all gonna get back from lunch on time. Um, but just a couple reminders is to make sure you're looking at that Z79. And if they are receiving long-term drug, drug therapy for any reason, whether it is anticoagulants, um, insulin, um, steroids, whatever it is, the long-term drug therapy definitely has an impact on our treatment and it has an impact in our medical decision-making for additional drugs or other um, therapies that can be considered for this patient. It has an impact on their outcomes for healing. And so we really wanna take a look at those. There's also guidelines, um, very specific, if the, the patient is taking a brief course of drugs for an acute condition, then it's not appropriate to do the long-term use. We're talking about the chronic conditions. We're talking about diseases that require a lengthy course of treatment. Um, those of you who are in oncology, think about your tamoxifen, think about your Herceptin, um, just two right off the top, that we are giving medicines for an extended period of time 
for prophylactic measures. Um, and we want to keep that in mind. And are we telling the payer the entire story? That's a lot of information and it's challenging because we go through the information and then you're at your desk and you're looking at records thinking, okay, but does that apply to this? If you have questions, general questions regarding the guidelines, general questions regarding the information that has been presented today, do not hesitate to reach out. I obviously have to give the caveat that I cannot review medical records. Um, you cannot send me you know, a snippet of the impression and plan and say, how do I code this? Phrase it in a question, how would you code this situation? Um, and I'll do my best, but we do have an opportunity if, if I do need to help you with a specific record, we can look at a coding support agreement for that. But if you have questions on the presentation, I don't wanna leave um, you confused and I don't want to raise more questions than we answered. So don't hesitate to reach out. Um, I know that we always try to leave time for Q&A. Today there was a lot of information to get through and I know that we're at the top of the hour. So don't hesitate either directly to me or through um, First Healthcare to submit your questions and we will do our best to always support you in your coding and compliance needs. Thank you for your time and your confidence both in First Healthcare and encoding strategies. Have a great day. Thank you, Karna. We've actually run out of time for questions today, so please use the contact information on the screen if you have any questions, or if you'd like, you can send us questions and we'll forward them on to Karna. You can register for any future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. Thank you for joining us.